Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. As we have been enjoying time with the Lord Jesus Christ, Sunday by Sunday, examining the words and the works of the Word of God made flesh, the God-man who came to live among us, it is a wonderful thing for us to do as a congregation, to be able to spend time with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith as we enjoy these true stories, these historical accounts about the life and teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do so, we learn about the real Jesus Christ, the genuine Jesus Christ, who is often quite surprising to us. We find that the Lord Jesus Christ is not always what mankind in his folly would imagine a perfect man to be like. What we imagine God to be like is not always the way that God actually is. And so this is a good reality check for us as Christians to find out, do we really know and understand the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we his friends? Does he recognize that we recognize him? That we see him as he is and that we're not worshiping some kind of image or idol in his place that we give the name of Jesus to while ignoring the actual person. That is a danger that Christians fall into quite often and hopefully our study of the Gospel of Mark will guard us from that form of idolatry. We come to Mark chapter 8 verses 22 to the end of the chapter this morning and we're getting to a great turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, we've been mostly focused, by Mark's design, upon the miraculous powers of the Lord Jesus Christ to heal and cast out demons, and that this was, according to Mark, designed, this focus on the power of Jesus Christ is designed to call some, to wake up some, to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Unfortunately, most of the people of Israel, as we see in our text today, have not understood who Jesus Christ is. They have not gotten the point of the miracles. The miracles were there to point people to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the voice of God spoke to the disciples on the holy mountain, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The miracles were the public demonstration that this is God's son and that we should therefore listen to what he has to say. Sadly, we found that most people are not very interested in listening to what Jesus has to say, but instead they're only interested in the healing, the casting out of the demons, they have their minds set on earthly things and they are blind to their spiritual needs. Sadly, this is also true even of the disciples. The disciples have seen and understood who Jesus Christ is. And today in Mark chapter 8, we have the great confession of Peter on behalf of the disciples recognizing that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And yet, as we've seen in the previous chapters, while the eyes of the disciples are open... They are not seeing clearly. They are not understanding what Jesus is trying to teach them because they have their minds set on earthly things, much like the crowds who are completely blind. As we come into chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Mark's Gospel, we're going to get 
three chapters that focus on this turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, where now his focus is going to be on teaching concerning his coming suffering. That he is the Messiah, as the disciples confess, but the Messiah is going to suffer. And this is a revolutionary concept for the Jews. This is a revolutionary concept for the disciples. And it's going to take repeated emphasis for Jesus Christ to try to hammer this point in to those who see but who are not seeing clearly. And it's not until after his death and resurrection that they are really going to understand what Jesus has been telling them this whole time. So we start in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26 this morning. Follow along in your Bibles as I read for us Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. And they, that was Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. But they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This account of Jesus' healing of the blind man at Bethsaida is, is fascinating because it's the only two-stage miracle that we have recorded by the Lord Jesus Christ in all the Gospels. And this is also the only place in the Gospels that this healing is recorded. Now, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, what you have noticed all throughout the miracles that have been done the last two years that you've been traveling Galilee and going to Jerusalem with him, is that the miracles of Jesus are instantaneous. They always are immediate and complete healings. And yet, here we have a story where the disciples remembered, and Peter remembered this story, and there's so many healings that Jesus did. Why does this one stand out? Well, because it's the only one that the complete healing was not immediate. And this probably raised questions in the disciples' minds. They were probably wondering, why? Jesus always had the power to heal completely and immediately, is there a lack of power that is being demonstrated here in Jesus? Is there a lack of faith on the behalf of the man who is being healed? What is the reason for this apparent failure to heal upon the first touch and requiring a second touch of the master's hands? Well, I think there's several things going on here. Some of it physical, some of it spiritual, and as so often the case, the physical and the spiritual kind of parallel one another. There's a spiritual truth in the physical reality that God is bringing about here. And help you to understand what I think has probably been mysterious for most Christians reading this in the last 2,000 years since it was written. I think we live in a time where we might be able to have a little bit more insight into what exactly is going on here. And I'd like to share with you the story of a man in our time who was blinded at the age of 10. 10 years old, he lost his sight. And then for the next 41 years, he lived as a blind man. But then, in 1991, he had a couple of surgeries that were able to restore his sight after 40 years without having vision. He's one of the few men in the world that we know of that have been documented in the modern world 
who have regained their sight after years, decades, of being without sight. His name was Sheryl. Shirley was his full name. Shirley used to be a man's name or a woman's name. We tend to associate it with a, a woman's name. So he went by Sheryl. And Sheryl Jennings, born in 1940, died in 2003. There was actually a movie made about his life called At First Sight in 1999. And it was in 1991 that he had the surgery to restore his sight. But when Sheryl had the surgery to restore his sight, he had great problems as a result of the sight being restored. He wasn't able to make sense of all of the visual sensory data that was coming into his eyes that had been opened, but his brain did not have the visual memory to make sense of the visual imagery that he was seeing. He had been blind for so long that his brain had basically gotten rid of all of the connections that he had formed in his years of making visual memories. And so it was a very painful and disorienting experience for him to have the eyes working, but for the brain not to be able to understand what it was seeing or to make sense of it. And so the family of Sheryl, they contacted a, a very famous neurologist named Dr. Oliver Sacks. And Dr. Oliver Sacks realized that through therapy, Sheryl was going to have to learn how to make sense, how to connect what he was seeing with what he had felt and smelled throughout his life. That now his visual senses had to correspond with his other senses that had completely taken over his understanding of the world. And so we don't know how long this man in Bethsaida had been blind, but I would say it's very likely that his visual memory was quite imperfect. Maybe it wasn't as bad as Sheryl's, but his visual memory was not capable of making sense of what he was seeing. And I think that's probably what he means when he says, I see men moving around, but they look like trees. I, I can't quite distinguish everything clearly. I think it's a visual memory thing. Now, Jesus, having opened the eyes of the blind and then asking him, do you see anything? He then lays his hands on his eyes again. And so in the first miracle, I understand that Jesus did the work of the surgeon who restored the sight of Mr. Jennings. And in the second miracle, he did the work of the neurologist. And he did them both instantaneously. The vision was healed instantaneously, and then the visual memory was created by a divine act of power within the blind man's eyes so that he could see clearly. That is, that he could make sense of what the eyes were sending, the visual data that the eyes were sending to the brain. Now, whether or not that's the case, I'll let you be the judge, but I tend to think that that is a probable explanation for what is going on here physically. Now, whether or not that's the case of what's going on physically, I think there's something that is more important spiritually. Let's talk about what the spiritual message is in this healing. Now, you'll notice in the healing that it's very similar to the miracle we looked at last week in chapter 7. Let's go back and look at the healing of the deaf man in chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. There at the end of the previous chapter, Jesus was traveling through Tyre and Sidon, came back to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and who had a speech impediment. And they begged him, notice they begged him, again, there's three miracles here in the middle of the Gospel of Mark where people have to beg Jesus to do the miracle. The casting out of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter's demon, this healing of the deaf man and the healing of the blind man. And 
In each case, Jesus is trying to keep a low profile. He's trying to spend time with his disciples and talk to them about his coming suffering and death and prepare them for that. And so he's kind of being distracted from what he wants to do by these cases. And they're begging him. And in response to being begged, he does grant their miracles. And so notice the other similarity here besides being begged to heal him. Notice in verse 33, taking him aside from the crowd privately. So as in chapter 8, he leads the blind man out of the village. Here he leads the deaf man away from the crowd for a private healing. Notice that he touches him, that he puts his fingers into his ears, and he spits and touches his tongue. So the physical touch and the spitting is also repeated in the miracle in chapter 8. And then he opens the ears, he loosens the tongue, with again a double miracle here for this deaf man in parallel to what's going on, and he orders them not to tell anyone about it, which is the same as what he does here in chapter 8 with the blind man. So, pulling aside from the crowd, healing with the touch and with the spit, encouraging silence, and having a double miracle in both of these cases, the hearing and the speaking, the seeing and making sense of what you're seeing. There's interesting parallels going on here. And these are both included as we are bracketed with the disciples not understanding what Jesus has been teaching them. That the disciples were worried about the fact that they had no bread when Jesus was trying to teach them about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And Jesus was exasperated with the disciples, wondering, how is it that you don't yet understand at the end of verse 21? So the disciples' eyes are opened, but they're not seeing clearly. The disciples' ears are opened, but they're not speaking clearly. There's a double stage so to speak, of the spiritual healing that God is doing in the lives of his disciples as we see it unfolding in the gospel. Now again, whether or not you think that I've made a strong enough case for that as the spiritual meaning of these healings, I'll leave that up to you, but I do think there's a good case to be made for that. I think that's what Mark is getting at in recording this miracle in this location at this time. So, Let's go on then to verses 27 through 30 and see the confession of Jesus as the Christ by Peter on behalf of the disciples. So Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Just as he strictly charged the deaf man to not tell, just as he strictly charged the blind man not to tell, he's telling the disciples not to tell anyone about him. Their ears are open, their eyes are open, but they're not yet seeing clearly, and it's not the time for them to be proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel. Now, in the previous section, I skipped past my map, Jesus was at Bethsaida. I'll remind you that Jesus spent a lot of time around the Sea of Galilee ministering. Capernaum was the headquarters for Jesus' ministry, but there were little towns and big towns all along the coast here, especially on this western coast of the Sea of Galilee. But Bethsaida is over here, 
You've got the Jordan River coming down through this valley. And so Capernaum is on one side of the river, Bethsaida is on the other. And over here is where Jesus probably fed the 5,000 when we had that. So that gives you some idea of where Jesus is when he opens the eyes of the blind man and restores his visual memory in a moment. And then Jesus is going to travel north. As we see in this account, Jesus has come to Caesarea Philippi. Philippi was an older place that was renamed by Philip, and Philip named it in honor of the Caesar who appointed him as tetrarch of this region. And there was another Caesarea, and so this Caesarea came to be known as Caesarea Philippi as opposed to the other one. And you notice that he's traveled about 25 miles north of Bethsaida, up through this beautiful valley to this beautiful spot where the waters flow down from the mountains into the little rivers that feed into the Jordan River. And this is, again, a a mostly Gentile area. So as he traveled to the region of Tyre and Sidon to get away from the crowds in Galilee, now he's traveling to Caesarea Philippi to once again try to spend some time with his disciples apart from the craziness. Here we have Jesus on the way asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? That's a good question. Put that question in your back pocket and be ready to pull that out whenever you want to start a conversation about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, say there's a, a lot of different religious ideas, there's a lot of different people, we're in a multicultural society. What are some of the views that people have about Jesus? A great way to start a conversation about Jesus. Very non-threatening, right? Well, the, the Jews say about this about Jesus. The Muslims say this about Jesus. The Christians, different groups, say different things about Jesus. And this group of Christians says this. And So you can just start to open up the idea of who do people say Jesus is. Now, in the disciples' response, you'll notice they've got three different options. John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the other prophets. This is not the first time in Mark's Gospel that Jesus has been misidentified in these ways. Turn back to Mark chapter 6, we'll remind ourselves, of how when we were looking at the story of the death of John the Baptist there in the middle of Mark chapter 6, you pick it up in verse 14, and King Herod was partial to this theory that Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. Herod, Antipas, was partial to this view because he was the one who had put John the Baptist to death. He'd ordered his execution. And so he felt particularly guilty about that. And so he was paranoid and thinking that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. And now that he'd been raised from the dead, well, he can do all these other miracles too because people who are raised from the dead do miracles. So Herod heard about it. He thought John the Baptist had been raised. But, notice verse 15, others said he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So this threefold misunderstanding, or these three different options for misunderstanding who Jesus is, were recorded in Mark chapter 6, and they're reported again here by the disciples in Mark chapter 8. Now, notice that none of these are bad. Being John the Baptist, or being Elijah, or being one of the prophets, it would all be very honorable positions, a position of great esteem and respect, And so the the crowds of the people of Israel are not rejecting Jesus. They're not saying, well, he's a charlatan, he's a a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's demon-possessed, some of the things that the religious leaders were saying. The people, by and large, held him to be a prophet. And, And that's good. But it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Why didn't the people of Israel identify Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah? Peter's about to do it. 
It should be pretty obvious from all of the miracles that have been done. God sent John the Baptist just like he said he was going to send his messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Son of God and said, the one that the Spirit comes down on, this is the one. So they should have recognized him. They had all the prophecies of the Old Testament. Why didn't they? Why did they say, oh no, he's not the Messiah. He's a, he's a prophet. Or he's Elijah. Or he's John the Baptist. That's a good question, isn't it? I think that the answer to that question is, is that Jesus didn't act the way that they thought the Messiah was going to act, and also partially that he didn't come from where they thought the Messiah was going to come from. They thought the Messiah was going to come from Jerusalem or Bethlehem, and Jesus is from Galilee and Nazareth, and, and so he doesn't have the pedigree that they're looking for. And then when the Jewish people thought of Messiah, they thought of a military commander like David, a king. And Jesus did not have the bearing of a king. He did not come in with a military force and he didn't start organizing his army. He didn't do any of that. And so the people are thinking, well, he must be a prophet. Uh, He looks like a prophet, talks like a prophet, does miracles like a prophet. He's a prophet. He's not the Messiah. And that's really remarkable because they were really excited about Messiah. If you went back to Israel at this time, Anybody who was a a possible contender for Messiah, the people were were ready to jump on board pretty quick because they were tired of being under the heel of the Gentiles. And they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah with great anticipation. There's a lot of messianic fervor and expectancy, and yet they don't see that Jesus is the Messiah. They've missed it. The disciples did not miss it. Notice Jesus then turns the question to them personally, and this is what you want to do after you started the conversation about Jesus, what are some of the different views people have about Jesus? Then you turn to the person individually and say, but what about you? What do you think about Jesus? Who was he? Did he rise from the dead? Is he the son of God? Or is that something that Christians made up? Just ask. It's not wrong to ask. And it's the most important question that you could ever ask. The most important question that anyone will ever be asked, who do you say that Jesus is. Now, Peter's response that you are the Christ, the Son of God, this is the first time the word Christ has appeared in the Gospel according to Mark since verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, the Gospel of Mark says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now for the next eight chapters, you don't hear anything, not one word about the Christ. Jesus talks about himself as the son of man, but no open proclamation, not one word, even on the lips of a Gentile like we have in other Gospels. But here, the first mention of Jesus, the first identification of Jesus in Mark's Gospel, in this narrative account itself, a very momentous turn of events in the Gospel. It's all been leading up to this. Everything that Jesus has done, everything that he said, has been to lead his disciples to be able to understand who he is. And they do. They understand that he is the Christ. But what does it mean to be the Christ? What is the Christ going to do? That is what they don't yet understand. What none of the Jews understood. And why most of the Jews missed the fact that Jesus was the Christ. The disciples know it, but they're confused. They're confused about What does it mean to be the Christ of God? And Jesus is about to enlighten them. He's about to let them in on the secret, the mystery that the Jews had completely missed. It was revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't see it 
in the Old Testament scriptures. They weren't ready to understand it. So, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why? Why did Jesus tell his disciples, you're right, I am the Messiah, don't tell anyone? What has to do with what he says next? Come back to chapter 8, verse 31. Now I want to read for you verses 31 through 38, the closing of the chapter, and really the point of everything that we've been building up to. This is the first time now that Jesus Christ is going to let his disciples in on the key to understanding the messianic secret. Why can no one know that Jesus is the Christ? It's because of verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. There have been lots of teaching so far throughout the book that has been in parables, things that have been hidden. But now Jesus is speaking openly. He's speaking plainly. It's not a figure of speech. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. He began to teach this. And we'll see that he repeats this in chapter 9 and chapter 10. But he's speaking so clearly that Peter understands his meaning. And so Peter takes him aside in verse 12 and began to rebuke him. The other Gospels tell us the content of Peter's rebuke. He said, Lord, this will never happen to you. Far be it. No way. This is not the plan. Jesus, you're mistaken here. Let let me get you back on the right path. You're the Messiah. Messiah doesn't die. But, verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, calling the crowd, you're the crowd, with his disciples. You're his disciples. He says to to them, and what he says to them, he says to us all this morning. He said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here it is. Here's the boom that is lowered on the disciples and the crowd. That to follow Jesus Christ you're going to have to take his path. And his path is suffering and death before resurrection and glory. To follow Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning and you want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to understand the path that you're signing up for. The path is suffering and death before resurrection and glory. That is what it means to be a Christian Here it is. Everything that we've been learning so far has built up to this 
teaching. Let's start again at the beginning in verse 31. He began to teach this. He's going to repeat it three times. Anything that is repeated three times in the Bible is there because it's highlighted. It's, it's like God is, is shining a spotlight on it and saying, right here at the heart of Mark's gospel, I'm going to tell you three times, what does it mean to be a Christian? Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. And Mark chapter 10, verses 33 to 34. And now, as Jesus Christ is allowing his disciples to know the secret, the Messiah is going to suffer, they must learn a willingness to suffer with him. Why did Peter have the audacity to rebuke Jesus when Jesus was speaking plainly about his upcoming death and resurrection? Now, the resurrection part, he might not have focused on as much. He's more more concerned about the dying part. One is commendable, and that is his love for Jesus. I believe that we want to be gracious to Peter and recognize here that it is his love for the Lord Jesus Christ that compels him and gives him the audacity to take Jesus aside and rebuke him for talking about his coming death. But when are we going to learn? Not to tell God what to do, even if it's springing from our love for him. God knows what he's doing. He sees what you don't see. His plan is perfect. He understands what the enemy's going to do. He knows what each person in the world is going to do. He sees all possibilities at the same time. He knows all things actual. He knows all things possible. He can think through the possibility of a thousand worlds in a moment. And you're going to go to him and tell him, "Uh, I think your plan is bad. I've got a better plan. You, the worm, You, the ignoramus. But there's a second reason that is not good why Peter has the gumption to rebuke Jesus, and that's his love for himself. I think very often we can disguise our self-love and wrap it in our love for God. I think a big part of the reason why Peter was so adamantly opposed to Jesus Christ dying is because, in his heart, Peter knew what that would mean for him. If Jesus dies, and I've hitched my boat to Jesus, I'm going down too. And that's why Jesus rebukes him so severely. I don't think there could be a more severe rebuke that you could get from the Lord Jesus Christ for him to turn to you and say, You are Satan. Those are strong words. And it's right after he had done such a great job of confessing Jesus as the Christ, and that's a lesson for us too. After you have your great victories, watch out that you don't set yourself up for a huge fall. Pride comes before a fall, and we start to think, hey, you know, I did something great. And then that's when Satan's going to trip you up, right? Same with Elijah having that victory on Mount Carmel. And then he got afraid of Jezebel and ran and hid. Very often, after a great victory, you are open to attack. And and here, Peter is open to attack, and he becomes the mouthpiece for Satan by trying to dissuade and discourage Jesus from following the difficult path, the dreaded path that is laid out before him. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. 
Jesus didn't want to become sin on our behalf. Jesus didn't want to drink the full cup of the wrath of God. He wanted to avoid that. He's a person. He has feelings. And now Peter, his closest friend, is trying to dissuade him from doing what God wants him to do and give him the easy way out. Just the way Satan had tried to give Jesus the easy way out in his temptation. If you fall down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You cast yourself down from the temple and the angels will carry you and pick you up and everyone will know that you're the Christ. And you don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. You can have the kingdom and the glory without going God's way. Now that's what Peter is basically doing. He's telling Jesus, you can have the kingdom and the glory without the suffering and the cross. That's why Jesus calls him Satan. And how did Peter fall into this? How did he fall into such a woeful state of betraying the Lord Jesus Christ with his earnest appeals to disobey God? Well, it's because he was setting his mind on the things of man. It's an easy path to being a Satanist. What does it mean to be satanic? It just means that you set your mind on the things of man. And once you start doing that, you are held captive by Satan to do his will. Do not set your mind on things on earth. Set your mind on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's the instruction for us as Christians, that we must be different from those who are in this world who are setting their minds on the things of man. We are not to be humanists with some kind of veneer of Christianity smeared over us, but we are to be theists, to be concerned about God, to be concerned about His glory, to be concerned about His plan, to be subject to Him, to be worshiping Him, to be recognizing His wisdom and His power, and to be willing to die if He tells us to die. What Jesus Christ says to the disciples, he says to all. That's why he calls the crowd in verse 34. No more important teaching in the Gospels than this teaching. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now keep in mind that when Jesus said this, he had not revealed to anyone that he was going to be crucified. He just told them he was going to die. But when he calls his disciples to pick up their cross, this is exactly the opposite of what the Jewish people thought the Messiah was going to do. The Messiah is not coming so that we can be crucified. We've been crucified long enough. We've been under the heel of the Gentiles long enough. We want the Romans to be gone. We want freedom. We want supremacy. Jesus says, no. I'm the Messiah. And if you want to follow me, you're going to be crucified by the Romans. That was a hard pill to swallow. Peter was crucified. He learns a lesson eventually. It just takes some time. It's not until after the resurrection that it starts to make sense. Their eyes that are open then begin to see all things clearly when the Holy Spirit comes and leads them into all the truth. Some key verses here I think we need to understand. In Jesus' words here, where he says in verse 36, What does it profit a man 
to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. So what if the Messiah comes and defeats the Romans? So what if the Jews become the head of the nations and they've got a king like David who sits on the throne and rules over the nations? So what? You're still going to die. Peter, if I avoid the cross, if I take the throne, if I defeat the Gentiles and make Israel great, you're still going to die. And then what does it gain? What's the profit in that path? Jesus, in one of his parables in Luke chapter 12, talked about the rich man who trusted in his wealth. He had all these goods laid up. He thought, oh, I've got it. I've got the easy life. I've worked hard. I've made wise investments. I've got some good years to look forward to. That's what the rich man told himself. Have you ever told yourself that? I've worked hard. I've got some good years to look forward to. You fool, is what Jesus says to you. This night, your soul could be required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Death has to be faced. Death is the enemy. Not the Gentiles. They're not the enemy. Death is the enemy that the Messiah came to defeat. And he can only defeat death through the cross and through the empty tomb. That's the plan. That's God's purpose. Peter learned this, but so did Paul. Paul had worked hard to get to the top of his world, and he had to give it all up. He gave it all up, and he went from being the top of his world to being the bottom of his world. The one who was doing the arresting and putting people in prison to the one who was being arrested and being put in prison. Total reversal. And Paul wrote this about his life in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. I have made myself a servant to all. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. What did Jesus say? Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Paul had his choice. He could live the rest of his life as a Pharisee of the Pharisees until the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem. Or he could live his life as the scum of the earth, the follower of Christ, and have his head cut off by the Romans. Make your choice. And he chose to follow Christ because he recognized the all-surpassing value of Christ and the worthlessness of having the world. Paul wrote again in Philippians chapter 3, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What's the best thing about Christianity? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Reconciliation to God. Paul was willing to give up the whole world for that. And after he made the trade, he didn't feel any regrets. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of Christianity. You can't come and follow Christ unless you understand this, until your heart knows it, until your heart believes it, and your life is given to God's purposes and God's will, and not human interests. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And Jesus said, 
Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. You can take glory with mankind now, whatever limited amount you're able to get among men. They're kind of stingy. Or you can take shame from the world of men now for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his words. Make your pick. What do you want? you want to have people honoring you now? Or do you want to have Christ honoring you then? Those are the two paths. You can't walk them both. Choose one. Finally, I want to talk about what Paul and Peter wrote at the end of their letters when they came to the end of their life and they really understood these things after having lived them for decades. And Peter, he writes to the church as a wiser man, an older man, a man who has heard the rebuke of Jesus Christ, who has listened to the teaching. He's repeated this story. He's passed it on to Mark. Mark's written it down. He's been preaching this now for decades. And he says at the end of his life, I rejoice and I want you to rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Suffering first, glory later. Paul and Peter both learned this lesson. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5.10, I mean, this is like a few out of pages of verses I have on this in the New Testament, right? Because this is the gospel. This is the message. This is the call. This is the most important message of Jesus Christ. And it's repeated throughout the New Testament over and over and over again. And so Peter emphasizes it again in chapter 5. He says, after you have suffered a little while. I don't know what's going to happen in the election. I don't know if the globalists and the elitists are going to continue to gain more power and consolidate and persecute Christians. I don't know. But whatever the case is, I know that after we suffer, to whatever extent we have to suffer, then the God who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If I have to be tortured for Christ, like Richard Wormbrand, so be it. If I have to lose my home, as so many Christians have lost their home, if I have to lose my job, as so many Christians have lost their job, if I'm separated from my family and I'm in prison by myself and I'm praying desperately for my wife and my kids whom I haven't seen for years, so be it. All for Jesus. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. Let's pray. Father God, give us strength to walk the path of Jesus Christ, to fear no man, and to set our minds on your interests and your concerns. Amen.